This is Mind Wars. I'm Chris Ryan, and on today's show, we got Kevin Ennett from Canada, who is a global human rights campaigner, author, and whistleblower, who has led the movement to expose and prosecute child murder by church and state in Canada and Europe. He's also the co-founder of ITCCS, which Kevin can explain shortly, and has been also nominated twice for a Nobel Peace Prize. Kevin, welcome to the show. Chris, it's good to have me here, or it's good to be here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's great to have you here. <laughs> so just to yeah. start off, um, for people who are not too familiar with you overall, Kevin, could you give us a, a brief background uh, actually on yourself? Well, I guess the immediate background is I was a, a clergyman on, in Canada. Uh, early, in the early 1990s, I got ordained into the United Church. And um, one of my first postings was on, right on the West Coast in a place called Port Alberni which was traditionally the last area where the missionaries uh, invaded. And it was an area, of course, mass murder. Um, in about two generations, something like 90% of the Indians there were wiped out by deliberately infected smallpox and tuberculosis, which I found out later working with survivors and, and accessing documents. But um, I got there very naive, like a lot of Canadians. They didn't know anything about our own genocidal history. and. Um, but the very first Aboriginal home I visited when I was taking food out to people was uh, the guy told me about the murder. He saw his best friend murdered in the local boarding school, which was run. The Catholics, the Anglicans, the United Church all ran these things for over 100 years in Canada. And uh, over half the kids never came back. Huge death rate, 60,000 or more children. Just similar to what you get in the Magdalene Laundries in the, you know, Bon Secours Orphanage in Ireland, the same death rate, huge, and it's the same, really, uh, the same system at work. And so when I heard these stories, I began to visit more Native people. I invited them into my church, let them speak from the pulpit. And uh, soon uh, there was, uh, you know, pushback from the church because they were worried about these, these crimes coming out. I was given a warning you know, to back off. And I didn't, I kept investigating. Finally, I got thrown out by the church, um, defrocked, the only public defrocking of a minister in our church history. So they were very worried about what I was unearthing. They wanted to slam dunk me. They helped arrange my divorce. They went to my wife and made sure she got the kids in divorce court after promising her money if she left me. I mean, you know, the usual kind of stuff you do with whistleblowers, you go up to their, their income and their family and hope they crack. But I didn't. I kept working more and more with Native people. We eventually, over 15 years, we built a movement that eventually forced Canada to admit some of this stuff in 2008. But what was uh, really quite interesting was right at the same time, people over in Europe heard about what I was doing. And I got invited to Ireland, to Dublin. There was a group that met in, um, in the fall of 2009. I first met them. Um, and these were folks who were picking in the, the Doyle in, in Dublin uh, over the, um, well, the, not just the obvious stuff about children being harmed in orphanages and Catholic schools, but um, Rosaline Rogers was her name. She had survived medical experimentation where she was used as a, you know, the church would farm out kids to drug companies for, for testing and medical experimentation and make a lot of money on it. And she was talking about that, inviting me to come over and speak. And after that, we got together and said, look, we're taking on a huge multinational institution here. You know, we need to be organized across borders too, the survivors of these crimes. So we formed the ITCCS, which was the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State. And that was formed in the, um, well, spring of 2010. And uh, we started campaigning all over the world. We began to get a lot of support because, of course, these crimes happened everywhere, not just Canada. 
and uh, eventually we formed a common law court in Brussels and it put Pope Benedict, Queen Elizabeth and others on trial, found them guilty. And what was interesting was just before the verdict came out, Pope Benedict resigns because the Spanish government had issued a diplomatic note saying, based on the evidence we've seen in this, this court case, he, you know, he could face arrest if he comes to Spain because he was signing letters to bishops all over the world saying, not only cover up child rape, because that's actually a standing policy in the Catholic church. You have to, or you get excommunicated. If you tell the police, you get thrown out of the church and into hell, I guess that's the way Catholics think. But um, not only that, but um, the, Ratzinger was uh, openly covering up child trafficking and the death of children. And this stuff came out, he stepped down. So did three top cardinals, including Cardinal Sean Brady in, uh, in Ireland, the cardinal for the whole country, because he had been involved in covering up the, um, the discovery. If you remember in Chum, in Galway, there was uh, at the Bon Secours Orphanage, they found a cistern with over 800, the remains of over 800 newborns and infants. And what didn't get into the press, I, I was talking to people in the Garde, and uh, one of the guys said that they had found uh, the early report showed that these skeletons had been chopped up. They'd been burned and dismembered, which often indicates ritual sacrifice of some sort. And um, again, the whole thing was covered up, of course. The Catholic Church and the, and the Irish government issued their report about their own crimes, which you get in Canada and everywhere these things go on. The perpetrators, you know, the serial killer picks the jury and the judge, pretty much. And, uh, and so naturally the thing is whitewashed, but it made a lot of people awake and very angry. And, um, and so we've been going really from strength to strength all over the world. And now you're seeing with all this COVID stuff, they're using exactly the same measures on everyone that they've used on Indians and, and kids and orphanages and that for many years, like the, the mandatory vaccination and that, that's all standard practice when it comes to Indians. You, you can't refuse vaccinations if you live on an Indian reservation in Canada. It's been that way for 140 years. So, I mean, this is all coming to a head now, these same measures. And I think it's very relevant to what everyone is struggling with these days, you know. And um, before we get into some of the heavier stuff is um, you lately yourself have been doing some great work regards to common law and the COVID-19 situation in Canada. Could you go into a small bit of that for me? Well, yeah, we, this really came out of our work. And I should mention to folks who are listening, you can see a lot of the evidence I'm referring to at uh, murderbydecree.com. That's like 25 years of research of, of this hard evidence of deliberate genocide by, by church and state all over the world. And um, anyway, the, what came out of it is we tried again and again in the Crown Courts in Canada to get this stuff out. They continually refused to look at any crimes by the Crown or its affiliates like the churches. And, and so we had to go international. That's one of the reasons we set up the Common Law Court in Brussels. But then we thought, well, why not bring it home? Um, people have the right under the, at least the English common law tradition to form their own courts and assemblies. And 12 or more people constitutes a government, you know, a lawful body. So we, uh, what we've been doing all over the country is um, organizing these common law assemblies. People, 12 or more people sign a charter and they start passing laws. And a number of the West Coast assemblies passed these laws a few weeks ago saying the COVID regulations are struck down. They're illegal. They were never passed by any parliament or court of law. They're unhealthy and they're not warranted because of the relatively low death rate from, from so-called COVID virus. And uh, then the, the, the assemblies got together from the National Council and passed one just two days ago on September 8th for the whole country. So now people have a lawful order that says, I'm not 
uh, not only am I not complying with these regulations, but anyone who tries to impose them is committing a crime and can be arrested and tried in a common law court. So it's really kind of turned the table and given people a sense that we don't have to be victims. We don't have to run and hide. They're the ones breaking the law. They're the ones using illegal measures, not us. And so it's putting power back onto the people. And it's early days, but I suppose from your experience, um, how successful do you think this will be in actually getting the people to rise up and move forward with it? Because I'm sure the other side is you've already is, from what I hear, you've got death threats. There's a pushback already. <laughs> oh, well, death threats are not a new thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, it goes back over 1998. I got the first death threats when we held our first tribunal in the residential school crimes in, you know, in Vancouver. But I mean, um, death threats are a sign of weakness. If they're going to kill you, they'll just kill you. They're going to give you a warning about it. It's like the threat of a lawsuit, right? Then go ahead. Let's go to court. Let's look at all the evidence. I've never been sued once over 25 years, which tells you a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, the uh, what was the first part of your question? Before the death threats? It was, I was uh, basically saying how, from your experience of stuff like this going through, how successful do you actually think oh, it will be? Do you think enough of the people will rise up and actually back this and go with it? Yes. I'll yeah. tell you, I'll g give you an example of that. Canadians are usually very quiescent and timid people. In the, the day after we passed that law and put it out, we had 68,000 hits in one day. On, and we, I, I was flooded. I probably have so far over a thousand email responses in less than a week from wow. Canadians. They're all saying the same thing. We're angry. We want to stop this. How do I form a local assembly? How can I take action? And um, it's phenomenal. I've never had that reaction in, all, in Canada for all the work I've done. I've had the reaction in other countries like America. People love it when you take on the government, right? When you take on, you know, they've got that kind of built-in suspicion of authority. But in Canada, it's very much the other way around. It's like, you know, the crown and, and, and the government will protect us if we obey the laws, that kind of British thinking, right? Empire thinking. But uh, no, it, it's, uh, it's really, you see it spreading more and more. People are very, very awake. It's, to them, it's more of a question of, you know, they want to fight it, but they don't know how. And they don't have confidence in themselves to do it. They're always kind of looking, well, has somebody given us permission to do this? So authorized somewhere. And I said, no, it's, it's authorized by people themselves that because we are sovereign beings who can govern ourselves. Right. And how easy is it for other people in other countries to do the very same thing? Just what you've done now. I feel a lot of people are just so unaware and know the option might be there. Well, common law, don't forget, common law has universal jurisdiction because it's really the law of nature. Mm. It's born in us. It's like what the American founding fathers said when, you know, we, um, I think it was John Adams who said America was something new in history because it was the first time men and women governed themselves. They had no sovereign except their own conscience and the law. They, you didn't need a queen or a king or a pope. You could govern yourself. You are the sovereign. We are the sovereign collectively. And... Um, you know, I mean, that's that's an idea that I think people naturally glom onto. Um, I had a Zoom call a few days ago with a group in uh, Norway and Russia, and they're translating my book, the Common Law Training Manual book, into their languages, and they love it. They just naturally agree with this, even though they don't have a tradition of common law. But again, like I say, it, it's, it's got universal jurisdiction. It, it supersedes every other man-made kind of law, like so-called canon law, admiralty law, all of that, right? Perfect. Um, I'm in London myself and I was a few weeks back, I was at the actual London protest. They had in the region about 35,000, but not in comparison to the population of just London alone. It should have been far, far more. 
uh, you see Berlin, obviously millions and millions of people rising up. Um, yeah. Is there any kickback like that in Canada? Or like you said, is everybody just yeah. a bit squirmish and leaving it up to somebody else to basically front the line? Well, English Can- Canadians aren't as militant as in Quebec. There was like 20,000 people in the streets of Montreal. Because, of course, the French don't like the British crown. I mean, they're already estranged. You know, they, they, um, they make fun of the Queen all the time. Uh, so, you know, I mean, so, yeah, in Quebec, there was more of a response. But again, um, there's over 100 assemblies that have formed all over Canada, mostly in English Canada. So people are learning. I mean, you learn from your experience. You got to get whacked in the head a few times. I had to, uh, you know, to really wake up to what's happening. So it's a learning process for everybody. But at least it started, you know. How positive are you, I suppose, moving into wintertime now when I know they want to turn cases into debts and ramp up the lockdown and every right. freedom's gone again overnight for this, you know, so-called scam of a virus that's going around the place. How do you, how positive do you feel? Like, I feel it's just talking to a lot of people and it's kind of, it's like they really need to be pushed back against the wall and have literally nothing. And that they're, this is the last yeah. thing they have to fight for. It's like they really need to be at the end of their tether before they go, right, actually enough is enough. I need to start getting out in the streets or start moving forward now. I see a lot of people getting to that point now. And right now, I think the more the system imposes these things on people, the more it's going to backfire on them because um, they're making the mistake, which rulers shouldn't make. And that is they're attacking a whole group. You know, selective targeting is how you control people, because if you attack an entire group, you create a lot of enemies and um, they're using really desperate measures and they don't make any sense the way they, you know, these haphazard responses. So, I don't know if they know what they're doing. I think it, it's, it's fairly uh, amateurish, I think, the way they're going about this. And, and they're creating, I mean, I often I say to people in assemblies, you know, we're not going to radicalize people. The system is. We've got to thank the police state because it's waking up, up a lot more people than we ever could, right? And we now have to take advantage of that and create that, that piston for all of the steam being created, right? Uh, correct, yes. So what I want to talk about then is um, the actual Vatican itself. Obviously, people have heard there's plenty of corruption and stuff in the Vatican, but nobody really knows like what actually goes on inside in the Vatican. I know you have a lot of inside stuff, um, detail-wise, that you know that's going on. Could you kind of enlighten us, basically, as to how deep the corruption goes in the Vatican and what are the tentacles coming off it worldwide? Well, you know, of course, it's the oldest corporation on the planet, and it was created in 317 by Emperor Constantine. And I often find it interesting, the symbol of the Catholic Church is... Jesus there, a corpse on a cross, because in, in many ways, that's exactly what the church did. I mean, they, they killed the man, Jesus, and his essential teaching, right, of, of love your enemy and nonviolence, and they became kind of a synthesis of the Roman Empire and, and the church, which was this empire, this global empire that said, and all the early papal bulls said this, and, and they're still on the books, these papal laws that say, if you're not a Catholic, basically, you don't have a right to live. We can extinguish you, take your land, when they came to the new world, there were two papal laws passed that said any Catholic king has a right to take anyone's land, including non-Catholics. They use this against my, for example, my Huguenot uh, ancestors in France. Any, you know, anyone who descended from the church of Rome was treated like a pagan and they could be murdered on sight. The best you could hope for if you were an Aboriginal in, in the new world was you could be enslaved if you converted and then they couldn't kill you or rape you, but they could work you to death. I mean, a gross example of this was everyone likes, uh, I call him Smiley Frank, Pope Francis, right? You know, the, the poster boy now to kind of do the spin operation and make it think, oh, everyone's better. Everything's better now in the church after the evil emperor got booted, right? But um, Bergoglio went to uh, 
Pope Francis, Jorge Bergoglio, went to California. Like three years ago, he went to the States and spoke to the UN about how we need one world government, a one world religion. And um, he went out to California and he, he beatified, okay, he made a saint out of this guy called Junipero Serra, who was a Franciscan missionary who personally worked to death over 100,000 Indians in California on these plantations. And they went out on search and destroy missions. Anyone who wouldn't convert, they just murdered en masse. So Bergoglio gets up and says, we are inspired by his zeal, right? Like this mass murderer is made a saint by a more liberal Pope. I mean, the, the reality is, and I, the reason I'm saying this is the, the, the ideology, the spirit is the same. It doesn't change over the centuries. It's basically, we have the right to wipe you out if we like, and that's a, that's a holy act. Well, that's what the Inquisition was called. An auto de fe means an act of faith when you're barbecuing other Christians because they don't agree with all the papal laws, right? Um, so, I mean, this is the nature of the institution. You can change the figureheads, you can change the, the mask, but it stays the same. Now, I began to get a lot of evidence of that on the ground. I mean, I, I, being a Protestant, I was kind of raised with that. <laughs> it wasn't like hating Catholics, but it was saying, you know, understand that you don't need to have this church to worship Jesus, you know, you, you can just do it, right? And um, you don't need to give money to the Vatican Bank and it's, it's uh, money laundering for the mafia, right? To be a Christian. So um, anyway, um, don't want to get into religious controversy. It tends to really create a lot of wars, right? We know that. But um, anyway, um, I learned on the ground from a lot of survivors when I went to Ireland and that uh, I met two, two survivors of something called the Ninth Circle. And this is according to records, there was a Vatican librarian who released that policy I mentioned earlier. It's called Crimen Solicitanus. It's the standing policy in the church saying that if a child is raped, the police are not to be told. Everyone is silenced. If anyone snitches, they're excommunicated. That policy was released to the London Observer in 2004 by this insider in the Vatican Library, translated out of Latin. It goes back to 1929. Well, he released an even more amazing document which made reference to the ninth circle or the circle of nine it refers to the ninth level of hell in in dante's inferno in that poem about you know uh, hell and um the ninth circle was the lowest level of hell where satan resided and where people went if they betrayed a sacred trust like the trust of a child well these ninth circles are sacrificial cults um, they go back the jesuits set them up and they sometime in the 1700s and every pope and top cardinal is expected to take part um, in these rituals and it parallels very much the catholic mass where it's believed that the blood of the innocent redeems us gives us eternal life whether it's christ or a young child and according to uh, two eyewitnesses uh, both women in uh, the netherlands uh, tos nienhaus and anne-marie van bienberg we have them recorded when we did our uh, common law court in Brussels. We have their testimonies describing how they were raised in these intergenerational satanic Catholic families and they witnessed the ritual torture, killing and cannibalization of young children. Um, human hunting parties in Belgium in the woods outside Brussels involving the Dutch and British royalty. A toast was taken to Carnarvon Castle in Wales where Prince Philip, Pope Benedict, when he was still a cardinal, uh, Joseph Ratzinger was still a cardinal then, taking part in these, these ceremonies, killing, dismembering children, all of this stuff. And again, the clerics from Ireland, she saw um, 
people who she later identified as Sean Brady and others taking part in these things, right? Which is why they were all named in her indictment in the criminal court. So on the ground, validated by not just witnesses, by documentation, and also, you know, the reaction of these people when they're named, they all resign. Um, the the head of the, Jesu the Jesuits, um, Adolfo Pichon, he was named in the indictment and he announced his resignation very soon after, which had never happened before to a superior general of the Jesuits, right? So um, all of this stuff is hitting a nerve, obviously. And I think it, the proof was in the pudding when Bergoglio went to Dublin, the turnout was something like five to 10% of what they normally had to a visiting Pope. I mean, the stands were empty. I remember um, when Ratzinger came to London in 2010, we had a protest of the Pope March and, and the organizers expected like 500 people. We had 20,000 in the streets of London. And, um, you know, they had to bus in kids from Catholic schools all over the country because the turnout was so low. So, you know, Catholics are voting with their feet very much saying, you know, this is not something we want to be part of. And I, I, I saw that all over Ireland. You know, I've been there a lot over the years and, and just see just a lot of, you know, traditional, very traditional minded people just staying away. Um, Mary Kelly, my friend and one of my friends in, in North Dublin, she took me to the local church, Pro Cathedral, and they seat 500 people. This was just a few years ago. There was like 32 people there on a Sunday morning. And, you know, that's in a quote, one of the most loyal Catholic countries in the world, right? I mean, it's all indicating this real revulsion people are having and the need for, well, really what we saw in the Reformation, uh, really a desire to clean house and start over, you know, I think. Just reverting back to the actual Ninth Circle itself for a minute. Is this like an actual, like a satanic cult worldwide? What people are involved? Are the headquarters in Rome itself? Or how does it operate? Uh, you know, who, who's actually involved in this? Well, the headquarters uh, has shifted around a lot recently. After we keep shining a light on it. Traditionally, it was in Rome. Uh, it was uh, one of the, the centers of these rituals was in a, a Jesuit church just a few blocks from Rome, uh, from uh, the Vatican, St. Peter's Square, called the San Lorenzo Church. It, um, there's a sub-basement area there where ritual sacrifices occur routinely. And, but it, it, it happens all over the world. It's very based, of course, in Europe. And it's tied in to what's called Drangheta, which is the European mafia. They do a lot of the human trafficking. They provide children for the hunting parties for a lot of this stuff. You know, the mafia, the Catholic church, these big corporate interests, they're all very much connected. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it, it is a very much an international network. It has a lot of, um, you know, backing police and government backing. Um, I mean, every head of the CIA going back to the World War II has been a member of the Knights of Malta, which is, you know, goes back to the Knights Templar in the Middle Ages um, and the, these other military societies set up by the Vatican to wage holy war, right? I mean, these, these, like I said earlier, these societies, the attitudes, they don't change. They just alter their appearance a bit when the light is shone on them. But it's very much a, just like what they call human trafficking, which is really a system of modern slavery. It, you know, it, it involves uh, over 20 million, mostly women and children every year that are, that are trafficked for all sorts of reasons. Um, not just, you know, sexual and sacrificial, but, you know, slave labor and everything all over the planet. Vatican Catholic Church very heavily invested in that. The Vatican Bank is a big backer of a lot of this stuff, investor in the arms industry and all of this. So, I mean, 
you just have to follow the money on this stuff and a lot of the stuff is exposed. How um, connected would you say Ireland are to it, being, as we said, you know, such a good um, good boy of a Catholic country that it is, even though numbers are diminishing and the, the pews and the church can, can show that, I even notice and more from time to time in Ireland, it's always, there's always much older priests or older nuns. It's diminished, like none of the young priests in their 20s or 30s seem to be joining anymore. It's just older no. faces all, you get to see all the time. I mean, do you believe after time it's just obviously going to dwindle out? Just like the, the Christian Brothers schools in Ireland as well, bit by bit they're eroding. There used to be massive for actual Christian Brothers teaching at one stage, and now it's, they're never heard of. The name is still over the door in the school, the CBS or what the Christian Brothers school, stuff like that. But the actual people inside are just regular people. They're not actually uh, brothers anymore. That's right. And, you know, I mean, when you've got billions of dollars, you can create any image you want of yourself, even when your whole, it's, it's really a shell. It's an empty shell, the church in a lot of places and the Church of Rome. Um, and so, but you find that with all the mainstream churches, they're all collapsing um, because of, they find there's a direct connection between people's involvement in religion and their level of poverty and, and lack of education. As people get more educated and more out, they tend not to go to church anymore. Uh, they can believe more in the here and now than in the hereafter, right? So um, we find that, but it's also just the simple matter too of of having to cover their uh, their assets when when you're faced with major lawsuits. We found that when we began suing the churches in Canada over all these genocidal crimes against the Indian children, um, they all started closing churches and hiding their assets, closing their offices, doing you know they're run by lawyers very much, and so. Um, you know, I think we are, people are naturally creating alternatives in their own ways. And yet they could very much, the media is, is very controlled by the same interests that run the church. So you're not going to see this reflected in any of the quote mainstream media, but it's a fact on the ground. Right. And uh, it's, it's a good thing. I think, you know. So I know you touched on the Vatican bank um, briefly for a moment. Um, that Vatican bank, I know many people have heard about it. I suppose they don't know, how powerful would you say on the actual world scale it is itself to ties all over the world? You mentioned the arms industry and stuff and that, but as well yeah. yeah. Well, there's a woman in Switzerland, Dr. Catherine Horton, and she's kind of devoted her life to this, um, researching where the money of the world goes. And um, one of the things she published showed that about 70%, nearly three quarters of all the money, uh, the banks, you know, and the other financial institutions of the world are channeled into two banks um, through 10 offshore accounts. And the two banks are the Vatican Bank and what's called the Bank of International Settlement in Geneva. And there they have extraterritorial jurisdiction, which means no law can touch them. They're never audited. They, they're, they're a completely secret society. And, um, you know, I mean, that's where something like um, $50 billion every year is raked in just from collection alone from most the Catholic church is m pretty much based in the third world now in Asia and Africa uh, and South America it, in, in Europe and North America, it's pretty much dead. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's that at that level. Um, so, yeah. So are, you all, are you also yeah. saying, say that at actual, a lot of the money say be it in Ireland or other uh, countries that are pretty much dominant Catholic wise, that's still there at the moment. Like, when people went to mass, they normally the basket gets thrown around, and basically people will put a uh, fifty pence or five euros or whatever they can afford to put into it. A lot of people believe, obviously, it's going back into the local area. Do you believe, obviously, the majority is going to the Vatican oh, no. or it's going elsewhere? Well, I know, having been a clergyman, that it was a standard policy, not just in the United Church but in every denomination, that on average about 
80% of the money is channeled uh, to either the national or the international church corporation. Like with the Anglicans, it goes to the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? And they're, they're like a parallel. Uh, Anglicanism is like, they, they want to be Catholics, but they just have the king and the monarch as the head, not the pope. Uh, rather than Christ as head of the church, which I was always told was the case. But anyway, um, so yeah, a lot of the money is a practice. They, they're just big money-sucking corporations. What people don't know is there's a thing called, um, you can see this on a, a website called concordatwatch.eu. A concordat is a special treaty that the Vatican has with various governments. Like they pretend they're a government when they're not. Uh, this Vatican is not a state. It doesn't measure, meet any of the requirements of a state, but they're, they're called that. And um, in concordat, a con in this concordat, they have financial concordats with over 100 governments, whereby something like up to 5% of in, uh, tax money is channeled right into the Vatican Bank without people even knowing it. And I'm sure there's one in Ireland. You could look it up, but check out that site, concordatwatch.eu. They've done a lot of research on this. And that alone and all the benefits, um, there is only one country in the world that where the Catholic Church has ever published their financial records in the United States, which they have to under federal laws, right? And uh, in 19, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2013, uh, the Catholic Church made 13.4 billion just in the US. And there's only about 15% of Catholics there. So it gives you an idea of the scale of this. Out of that 13.4 billion, less than 1% uh, went to charity. But half of that came from grants from the government. So the Catholic Church actually paid out only about one half of 1% of their income for charitable works. So right there, they should have been disqualified from tax exemptions because that's, that's the basis for not paying taxes, that they're a charitable society. In fact, they're not. They're money laundering. Uh, they're the biggest corporation on the planet from a financial point of view and um, under the guise of religion. So that's fraud. They should instantly lose their ability to operate and their, their tax exemptions and everything if it, this was any kind of lawful society we live in. Um, that's just one example. And, and I should mention, folks, you can see all my books on Amazon uh, under Kevin Annett. But uh, one of them is a, a book I wrote for people at the UN saying the Vatican needs to be expelled from the UN. And here's all the reasons that they don't qualify for membership. They got in illegally. They knew it was never voted on to even allow them in. They just cut popes kind of invited or uh, secretary generals invited them in uh, secret deals with the popes, but they, they shouldn't even be in there. And, um, you know, so it, it's another example of the fraud and crime that goes on at the international level. You know, the collusion with the state, church, big money. It's it's that triangle is what created genocide historically. And it's it's still going on. Right. Yeah, because I see it when I go home from time to time back in Ireland, it's on a Saturday night, or be it a Sunday morning, the people constantly outside of churches with their little signs up, begging, begging, begging all the time. And it's a case of like, you own pretty much, I'm saying half the land, but there's an awful amount of land in Ireland that they're supposed to basically own the Christian brothers, to the nuns, to the parishes, to everything that they own around it. But yes, they're constantly, consistently begging all the time. There was a cathedral in my own town, I think it costs was it, over 2.5 million in the region of that. They want to basically restore it and fix it and do lots of stuff to it anyway. And that 2.5 million came from all donations pretty much across the world outside of town as well. And if you only sold off a small bit of land, they could have easily had that money if they wanted to. I knew actually a guy that was on the chairman of that committee. And he said one morning, he said that they got a, an envelope anonymous of over 25,000. 
he said and that was that was just one of many he says i was dropped in he says and people are asking why would you think they would do that he right. said his, his reason he reckons because a lot of people are feeling guilty over time they could have got on in years and they for just feel guilty for maybe sins they've done over time and say look there's 25 oh, <laughs> <laughs> well it was funny like I, when, yeah. I was in, when i was in rome one of those times i couldn't go in to the vatican I just couldn't stomach it but my friend went in and she said yeah, they've got a big sign that says papal blessings, 150 euros. Like in Martin Luther's time, where that's the thing that sparked him to issue his theses against indulgences, where you can buy your way into heaven. You pay enough. And it actually, apparently, God prefers uh, credit cards to cash. You know, there must be this big bank in the sky somewhere because it's, uh, you know. So it's for yeah. people to actually believe you can pay to improve your spiritual status. It, I don't know. It's just such an abomination. Like, yeah. I don't know. But you got to get brainwashed and traumatized at a young age, and I think you know to believe this garbage, and and that's why the sexual abuse is so rampant and so institutionalized that that's how you keep the flock in line, right? They're afraid of challenging, you know, Big Brother, and um, you know it, it works a lot. But now these these things happening in the world now, I think, are breaking people from this and and making them look at you know this whole traumatic system that's been set up to control people, right? Yeah, I've seen it as well. Just just to briefly touch on that again was um, there's a couple of elderly women in the town where I used to grow up. And basically there's people coming down from Dublin. Do- Dublin is at least an hour and a half, three quarters away from the hometown was. And um, they were constantly, every every three to four weeks, they would come in and see where they're okay. And I was doing a bit of work in the area as well. And and uh, they pretty much, they were looking for the house. Like this, it's a many thing in Ireland that basically yeah. got over time to kind of keep in with the elderly. And all of a sudden, then the elderly sign over their house because they might have nobody left or because they're so... Catholic brainwashed us like I think yeah. this is the best way to go and this actually will get me into heaven a bit quicker and safer and I feel better going to sleep at night you know <laughs> the madness so continues sad. like <laughs> I know it's so sad and I just yeah I know you know what the, another horrible part of this is having worked in a lot of healing circles both when I was in the church and then out after um, it's especially hard to overcome this trauma if you've been raped as a Catholic child because you equate the priest with God you believe that he's a direct pipeline, you know, to heaven. And if he's harmed you, I must, there must be something wrong with me. And that's a lot harder for a Catholic to deal with than somebody who doesn't have that belief, who just says there was this jerk and he, he harmed me using his religious office to protect him. No, that the trauma is so much greater among Catholics and causes such enormous suicide rate and everything. I think that's why when this stuff first became to, uh, it began to surface in Ireland, it was huge. I remember there at one point, there was a couple of thousand people outside the Doyle protesting this stuff. And you didn't see that in other countries because, of course, the Catholic Church represented culturally the resistance of the Irish to the British and over the centuries. And I mean, and yet the sense of betrayal is so much greater because of it, right? That um, So, I mean, I've, there was a group that formed a few in Ireland called Not In Our Name, Catholic Priests it got stomped pretty quick by the archbishop, but um, it was local priests who said, we're not going to enforce this policy of criminal solicitanus. If children are harmed, we're going to tell the police. And um, we can be, you know, Catholics without being tied to Rome. We want our own national church. And, you know, that, that again, they got, came down on really, really hard for doing that, but that's what needs to happen. People got to split away from from Rome and say this is nonsense you know we can govern ourselves right and uh we touched on a small bit there a few minutes ago on the actual rituals you're saying that goes on in the Vatican and it's you know it's a very common thing that goes on it's not a once-off situation yeah. I suppose people will say like well how credible is that how do we actually know this kind of goes on 
where I suppose is, is the big question, where did you get your sources? Have you not, once I witnessed some, but you, you went through a lot of paperwork over times of rats singing or different things that went on a good yep. few years back. Um, I suppose, what's your insight on that? For people, the, the sort of non-believer kind of right. going, oh, I'm not so sure, how was that credible? Well, it's kind of like, you know, Dunning Thomas says, I have to see this wound in his side and the scars on Jesus' hand to believe, right? Uh, I've seen the scars. I've sat with Tos Nienhaus and, and, and Marie and others who don't want to go public. Um, when you, as a counselor, uh, you know, and as a minister, you have to detect your bullshit detector has to be fairly high. You can see in someone's eyes when they've suffered and have been tortured and it's real. Uh, it's validated by documents. There's even references to it. There's acknowledgement to some degree made about this stuff um, in the residential school uh, campaign began to admit that yes, at one point, one of the church officials said that yes, it was ritual torture and that got swabbed out of the media very quick, his comment. There was a, a, a woman, Irene Fable, and we have this on our site, murderbydecree.com. She said when she was nine years old in a Catholic school in Saskatchewan, she saw a priest take a newborn baby and throw it into the fires. And he was wearing his robes and chanting when he did it, it was like a ritual. And, um, she said, I heard the baby cry out and the body go pop in the flames. And um, that was up on the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation site for 24 hours. And then it was taken down and there's never any record of it. So these things sneak out. But again, the system moves in quickly to, you know, relying on people's will to disbelieve. Their desire to not want to believe this makes it unbelievable to them. They, they just can't accept it. But a lot of people can because it's borne out by their own experience. And, um, you know, I mean, you know, do the body count. The Catholic Church has killed more people in history than any, any organization. So why would any of this be unbelievable? Just read history, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And how does, do you believe it's a form of satanic ritual abuse? Because people don't like yeah. putting the Satanism part into it. But um, you believe that stuff kind of goes on in Hollywood and different things like that. But I believe, obviously, it's very real that actually goes on. But it's just getting... Because when I grew up as well, like a Catholic, years and years ago, it's nobody will mention the devil. Nobody will mention the dark side. It's all we need to basically talk about the good side. Don't you dare mention that devil or 666, rotten like that. It's like they want to just shun that to one side and everything is all pretty and rosy in the garden, which we know yeah. it's far from that itself. Well, you know, the trouble with in Western tradition and our religions is that we tend to project everything outwards. The devil is out there. God is out there. Somebody is out there that we have to pray to or... But the point is that's all projections of our own psyche. And we have that shadow in ourselves. We have that light within ourselves. And people like people often say, do you think Queen Elizabeth is a lizard? And I say, well, you don't have to be a reptile to do horrible things. You know, human beings are capable. I've worked in prisons, prison ministry. I've met serial killers and psychopaths. And they always feel that they're the ones who've been victimized. They have no qualms about what they do. They don't have a moral structure. They don't have a conscience that part of that your vanity has been eradicated or was never even there. So no, I don't believe Satanism is a catch-all word. Um, Satan means adversary, right? And in fact, in the Bible, Satan is a servant of God. Like in the book of Job, he goes out to test Job, to test his faith on behalf of God. So it's kind of like that yin-yang. Um, I, I thank the people who destroyed my life in the church because they brought me into a greater awareness. So sometimes the dark can help us, right? Um, these rituals and killings, they're definite satanic cults and they call themselves that. But 
Um, I found as well that on the other side of the coin is people who are involved in mind control programs that the military and the government use, they're often given post-hypnotic programming to say you're in a satanic cult to hide the fact that it was military programming and, and government involvement and church involvement. So you got to be a bit cautious when the word Satanism is thrown around too much because it's, it's describing something that's really quite common and uh, child abuse is not a crime, general crime in our society. It's a way people are controlled. And, and so um, I think all of that has to be considered when people talk about Satanism, right? What from your experience will be like a, a typical ritual in the actual, say, Vatican itself? Is it generally kids like they like to go for in general because they feel more empowered if it's a child or how do they recruit, I suppose, is another way of asking as well. Well, I can talk about like a little bit about the Vatican from my knowledge of contact with it and the survivors, but it's a, a broader question too, satanic ritual abuse, SRA, mm. um, they call it. Um, I don't like the word abuse, torture is a more honest description, but abuse is too vague, but um, there's only two counselors in Canada who are licensed to do SRA. It's generally discredited among psycho psychoanalysts and that and counselors. But um, from their stories as well, the rituals are almost always the same. And it's, it, it starts at a young age. It's mental programming. For example, one of the guys I had on my show, and you can see all these, these um, I'll give you the link to my, my yeah, blog. Yeah, I'll put show. all your description in the links below. I will afterwards, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a guy called Dave Staffan, he was a survivor in Ontario of a satanic ritual family, multi-generational, you know, raised. The, the women are uh, produce babies that are then ritually sacrificed or raised within the cult. You know, they have police, social workers, um, midwives who are all part of the cult and they provide these babies and that. Um, they prefer newborns, blood of the innocent, they think has the most power. Um you know, but what what happened, according to Dave, he was brought in at a young age. He was psychologically tortured, raped, beaten all the time. He was broken down by, for example, another child was brought in front of him and tortured in front of him. And he was constantly told, help him, save this boy. And they were preventing him from saving him. And so he was crushed inside thinking, I caused this boy's death when in fact, these guys with knives did, right? Uh, he was forced to, you know, he had a little puppy raised, you know, and uh, he had to kill the puppy with a knife. Uh, you know, like these same methods were used in residential schools. They're used in, pro deep, you know, in the programming of young soldiers and special forces and that. They did, the, the SS did the same thing. To be in the SS, he had to raise a dog and then strangle it with piano wire, um, just crushing any humanity in you. These same methods used in satanic ritual families. Uh, then it, as you get older, you were involved in killing. You were expected to kill in these rituals yourself. And that way you're implicated so you'll never snitch, right? Um, at a higher level, uh, you have to, as a, as a, in order to rise up through the cult, you have to ritually sacrifice your own child, usually your firstborn. And um, if you don't, you're immediately killed, as an example. So, you know, that's, um, you know, there's examples I can use of that, of, of the way it's happened, different, you know, even celebrities who are, who are known for having done this, politicians, you know. But um, that's kind of the, the way it's psychologically breaking down people and making them so that they can't even imagine being separate from the cult. And, and so, you know, there's different other aspects of that. Prolonged torture, keeping the person alive as long as possible to feed off their fear and terror, um, you know, and people talked about 
you know other aspects of that but i mean that's in a nutshell kind of what what has been described to me and i've you know i get the sense as well from having worked with at, at you know with in exorcism ceremonies i've done three of them and i've witnessed things that really can't be described but makes you realize that it's um a definite reality whatever you want to call these entities that they definitely feed off human beings yes um staying with the exorcism part i believe you done an exorcism yourself was over something like 10 years ago or more in rome the first time i was invited there by some human rights groups um they you know as you know like aboriginal people in in america are, are like uh, romanticized over in europe right so uh we all want to be play indian especially in germany you find that in italy right and um, so they thought it was cool. I was working with natives, so they invited me over. And I gave some talks, and uh, I brought with me some soil from one of the mass graves at a Catholic school. And I thought, you know, I want to do a ceremony for them in St. Peter's Square, right in the face of the beast, right? And I went there, and then when I, when I was there, um, something occurred to me that, no, this is really an exorcism. You've got to call it the spirit. You've got to confront it, right? So uh, whatever this thing is in Rome. So what's really odd Chris, is that I was standing there, and normally the policy in St. Peter's Square, you cannot hold any kind of protest or religious ceremony if it's not approved. And if you try, just a few months before I was there, these 13, they're called 13 grandmothers, their native elders came over and they tried to hold a ceremony, and the Rome police immediately arrested them for, for holding that ceremony, for conducting a pagan ceremony, right? Um, which is apparently against their law. But... Um, it makes you wonder how they would treat Jesus if you showed up. <laughs> right? but, but anyway, um, I was there. I'm standing there in the middle of St. Peter's Square. I've got my vestments. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm doing the whole ceremony. And they're walking by, uh, ignoring me, which nobody could explain. I, you know, one of the guys there, there said, I guess you're invisible. Must be your Irish Druid ancestors. Maybe you kind of shapeshifted there for a minute, Kev. But uh, <laughs> yeah, who knows what happened? You went invisible. Anyway. I did this thing and I called it the, in the first stage of an exorcism, you call it the entity, you name it to help um, take away its power. And the next morning, believe it or not, you can look this up. It was, so this was October 11th, 2009. I did it October 12th in the morning, the next morning, a tornado hits Rome for the first time in over 40 years. And what was even more significant is two days later, the European media started reporting Pope Benedict or Joseph Ratzinger's direct role in covering up, issuing letters to bishops, covering up child trafficking and worse that was going on the death of children in the Catholic Church. And then, you know, the, the doo-doo hit the fan at that point and it all came out. And, and I remember coming back and when I told that to the native elders I worked with, they said, geez, Kevin, that was powerful. I mean, look, look, what, look what was working through you there, right? It just blew the whole thing open. And I think in the last 11 years, everything that's come out, um, it, it's like, I don't know, I don't want to take too much credit for this, but it, it's definitely after that, that a lot of this stuff began pouring out. And there's a whole other aspect to this that we don't see, you know, but if when you call it to its face, um, it definitely has a result. And I, having been in other, I was in an exorcism before that in Port Alberni working with actually the local Catholic priest. Uh, I was kind of in the prayer support group for him when he was uh, doing an exorcism. And um, he subsequently got defrocked himself, which was interesting, that priest. Um, but uh, for similar reasons, I mean, he was challenging the bishop and 
on a lot of this stuff, but he and I were working on this and it, it, it's a reality. Like I mentioned before, the, the possession is a reality and uh, in, in a certain number of cases. And, and I think it could explain, you know, a lot about what we're dealing with in terms of how people can be so inhuman to do these things. I mean, I don't know if they're in the right mind and, and I've seen how that's possible. So that's kind of my experience of it. And, and uh, it was definitely fun experiencing all that <laughs> I said least yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, suppose, I suppose the big people are the big question people ask they kind of go is uh, exorcism itself you have to be a special kind of person to do it and then the other thing they'll say that you, well you see from the movies of course but you've experienced in real life is that when you're actually doing an exorcism they say it completely drains all literally almost the life out of say you for example the person that's actually oh. doing the exorcism itself how true and how much of a hollywood myth is some of that stuff <laughs> well some of it is is Hollywood and church propaganda that, you know, um, it takes special people to do it. I think you do have to be a, a unique kind of person to do that. Be very loving and very centered in your faith and very grounded spiritually. But even that, I remember I read a book once where this Irish priest had only done three in his life. And he, he said, yeah, it, every time you encounter that entity, that darkness, that it takes something out of you. And I know, you know, the, the thing of exorcism, it's, it's not just about individuals who are possessed but what do you do when a whole culture is what do you do when a whole institution is possessed by a spirit of conquest and greed and corruption right to me that's the bigger question right and that exorcism starts in each one of us we just have to just not be associated with it not not feel that we have to sacrifice our own integrity and values and conscience for the sake of something bigger because there isn't anything bigger that's uh um, you know, there's an old saying, the soul is given to the individual, not to the group. And I think that's true. You know, we have to guard our souls and, our, and, and not give it up, which I've seen, you know, having been a clergyman, I've seen a lot of my, my fellow clergy people were broken because they, they had to be part of something that they knew was wrong. And when you do that, you lose some of something to yourself. Kind of like when you go up against what that priest said, when he went up against the evil one, it takes something from you. Now, I don't think the, if you act in conscience, I don't think that that takes the essential part of you, but there is an energy exchange. If you give up your life for another, uh, which you do, you very much give up your life for the innocent who's possessed. Um, it's, there's a price, there's a cost involved. And I know in my own life, that's true. I mean, I, when I lost my, my family, my children, when I went through horrible blacklisting smear campaign that still goes on attacked, hated in your own culture, it, part of you dies and my innocence and naivety did die. But I, I, if you want to talk in resurrection language, something else came forward that they can't control. And that's the, the, um, the really the, the beauty of what we go through right now and the, and the separating that's going on in human race is when you're faced with this kind of horrible police state and tyranny that we face, it sorts people out and it sorts us out inside. It kind of like, makes us realize that we have to make a choice and stand on a stronger and higher ground, be better and, than who we, we thought we were. And it's that, that when I see that happen, I say, yeah, all that suffering is worth it just to bring that out in us, you know? And I don't know if you want to go into a small about your own personal situation to touch on it when years ago, when it, when you were over in Canada itself and that, and when basically your, you know, your wife is leaving you by the church, obviously helping her with money, I think it was up to a quarter million or more, if I'm correct in saying, and your kids and that at the time was your wife and maybe your kids are too young were they not kind of seeing you know kevin I, I just don't understand what you're doing what are you doing or did they just like did they not understand what basically you were doing 
And how is it to this day? Like, have they kind of come around and realized, oh, shit, actually, yeah, you were actually doing for the, the greater cause. There was obviously no bad intentions of what you were doing. But is it too, well, you know? My ex-wife, Anne, she was Irish Catholic, actually, and McNamee. And uh, her dad didn't like his daughter marrying a Protestant clergyman in training. So there was a bit, <laughs> yeah. of, there was yeah. a bit of problem there, family issue. But um, not enough to make them do what they did subsequently. Because, and Anne as well, she, she always backed what I did. And yet she had gone through abuse at the hands of her own dad at a young age. And in psychology, they call it transference. If you can't deal with the person who did the harm to you, you transfer it onto a safe figure. And all of a sudden you start hating that person without cause. And you find as a clergyman, you get that a lot. You know, you get hate stares and people, you're a lightning rod for people's shadow and light. And you're either Satan or Jesus to them, right? A, a lot of the time they do that projection. Well, Anne did that. And right at the time that I got fired, she was getting quite nervous about the stuff I was raising you know, allowing natives to speak from the pulpit and that, not enough to kind of insist that I stop or anything, but they, she was going to a counselor and the church had access to that, that counselor shared information unethically with people in the church and they knew how to approach her then and press her buttons. They basically said, you're never going to work. Your husband's never going to work again. If you want to leave him, we'll make sure you get the kids, which is interesting that they could guarantee that it shows you the collusion going on the, in the court system and the government because nobody wanted, you know, in official society wanted this stuff coming out about mass graves of children. It hadn't been out. There'd be no lawsuits about it. So I was definitely leading this. I was the tip of the spear on this stuff and they used everything they could to crush that. And um, so it was traumatic for me. And she, uh, yeah, as people tend to do when they've done something they don't like in themselves, they keep denying it. And she kept, you know disliking and hating me over the years <laughs> but that's lessened everything lessens with time um my children were only six and three at the time claire and eleanor and actually claire is named after the county which is where we were county claire when we were pregnant so um we uh they both they're now 31 and 28 and uh we love each other, but there's a distance and it's because they've never faced that trauma in themselves. And I, any child of divorce goes through that, you know, you're pressured to, to almost, um, it, they call it parental alienation syndrome in family court. You kind of feel you have to side with one parent against the other. So you accept one parent's narrative of what went on and you can't accept other parts that might contradict that. I mean, we get all that, but don't forget, Canada was vilifying me all over. And that can't help but influence everybody, including your own family and children. Um, frankly, there's nobody in my biological family who wants much to do with me anymore, except my father, who's American. He lives in Florida. He was the family scapegoat himself, so he can relate to me now. And he's actually one of the guys who have helped me get nominated for the Nobel Prize among American scholars, right? So um, it's funny, you know, that, 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 what we go through can alienate us from our own blood. And that seems odd. It always did to me because I always felt health family to be sacred, you know, the blood tie. But I realized that even love can be overcome by fear and this very much a demonic force at work, um, which, which attacks people in their weakest points, you know? And so all of that has had an effect, but nothing is ever written in stone. I mean, if you keep, talking if you keep your heart open keep telling the truth what you experience that's all you can do right and people then have to decide 
you know, which way they're going to go. Right. And that's kind of been my approach. So. Exactly. I always believe if there's validity in your truth, but nobody knows actually what you're on about at the time, they might think you're cracked or you're a conspiracy theorist or whatever it is, is I believe there is validity in your truth. Just stay going. You'll have to go through the ditches and the thorny barbed wire first, but just keep going. And at the end, I think somebody will see. Just stay true to yourself like you have been um, for, for all these yeah. decades, pretty much. But, well, um, and I've created, just on that too, Just uh, I've created, I've lost one family, but I've found a new one, right? I've, all the people all over the world who've come to this and I get wonderful support from people all the time and i wouldn't have had that unless i had have taken the stand so i mean it's part of your own growing up i guess you know like there's that old saying if there is a god i don't think he wants us to be happy i think he wants us to grow up you know and suffering is part of the way to grow up you know <laughs> the hard way <laughs> yeah but it, it works it's very effective you can't deny your own experience right the problem is, is when you do <laughs> well Oh, what I want to touch a small bit is the the pedophilia rings that is even becoming more and more, I don't know, as mainstream the word to use for yeah. it lately, whatever it's going on. I feel more and more people are talking about it. How connected um, is the, the Royal Dutch, the, the actual royals in England, the Vatican? How much are they actually conspiring together and have possibly been for some, some time from the research you've done yourself? Well, Again, at the level of eyewitnesses, that's, uh, there's a direct correlation. They often describe um, Dutch and British royal family members being at the same rituals. You know, historically, we know there's a link between the so-called royal families all over Europe in these crimes. Um, and it also makes sense from, you know, having been around people with a lot of wealth and power, the more you get that, the more you think you're God and you can do anything. And I remember early on in this work, uh, there was a... Uh, years ago, there was a, a really well-known TV commentator in Vancouver called Jack Webster. And he was very prominent media personality. And I had lunch with him once because he learned about what I was doing. And he said, you know, Kev, because um, he knew me from early when I was a high, in high school, I was a kind of a high school radical and did human rights campaigns. And he knew me from then, right? So he, he said, uh, you know, these guys at the Vancouver club, and that's the elite club where a lot of child trafficking goes on in Vancouver. He said, they pass children around like a, a fine bottle of wine and they're totally protected and nobody can touch them. And there's not a damn thing I can do about it. And that's just the way things are. You're not going to change it. And the people who try to change it end up in psych wards or they end up dead. So he was kind of warning me and, uh, I mean, it's understood at that level of society. It's not like these things are known. It's like when you're in Chicago and Al Capone is in charge, what are you going to do? You pretty much <laughs> you gotta, wants everybody. You've got to operate. Yes. Well, I mean, you've got to operate outside their jurisdiction, which is why we set up these common law courts, why we're talking about a republic in Canada. I should mention that site too, republicofcanada.ca. I guess you'll have all of these up on your I will, website. I will. I put yes. them all up for sure, definitely. Yeah. 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 Good. Thank you. Prince Philip and the actual Cardinal himself, Pope John II, was, was at Wales many, many decades ago. And they were supposed to be actually involved in a ritual or witnessing a ritual, from what I understand. Well, that's according to Tos and Anne-Marie. They both made reference to that. Um, the, the proof we have, even more concrete proof something i haven't mentioned which is the case of the abduction of these 10 children yes, at please. the kamloops residential school um 
this was surfaced by William Coombs, a native man who worked with us until he was murdered um, in Vancouver. And he said on October 10th, 1964, he saw the queen and Prince Philip take 10 children, seven boys, three girls, out of the Kamloops school and they were never seen again. They were local children, no one ever saw them again. The numbers all add up to 10, October 10th, 1964, 10th month, 10th day, 1964, 10 children. Um, and um, William gave testimony about this. We were arranging to have him come to London in early 2011 to give a testimony in front of a human rights group there. Two days before he was to leave, he um, was taken by force by Mounties down to the St. Paul's Catholic Hospital. And according to the nurse, Chloe Kirker, who I've interviewed, and we have this on tape, he had all the symptoms of arsenic poisoning, not TB, which is what the death certificate said. And she believed they were poisoning with arsenic. She tried to object about it. She was fired, had to go into hiding. She lives now in, down in the States for fear of her life. Um, but they said, no, they killed him with arsenic poisoning in February 2011. And um, we subpoenaed the queen. They never answered charges about this. They never answered the, uh, the charge against them. And under the law, that's an admission of guilt and you can be found guilty. That's in fact the, the basis of how they chopped off the head of the King of England, 1649, is Charles refused to respond to the charges. So it's called a pro-confessive admission of guilt. You're, you're not contesting what's being said about you, so you're, you're agreeing with it. And that all happened. That's one of the basis of finding her guilty and saying, well, the head of the church and state in Canada is now a convicted felon, so we need a new arrangement. You can't have Canada anymore, right? Um, you need a republic. I mean, this all flowed out of the trial and, and that evidence, that damning evidence about that, we had a police accredited psychic come to the site where the children vanished and she said, oh yeah, they were killed the same day. Um, she saw their bodies in a ritual configuration. Um, you know, and we checked the records. They, the Royal family, so-called, were in Canada that month in 1964. And so it all checks out. So, I mean, it's not the lack of evidence. It's knowing what to do with it when the criminals are in charge. It's always the issue, right? And how are things today in actual Canada? I know you wrote an awful lot in your actual book, Murder by Decree. Um, how is the situation today? with actual genocide and stuff? Is it, I mean, is it still ongoing or now because it's made more mainstream, you didn't have as much internet back in the day, it couldn't get out as much. You were doing a superior job in what you were doing with little resources you had. How easy or, or is it today? Is it still going on? It's but much it's, worse. Oh, it's much yeah. worse. We've, we've issued reports on this. Um, the Chinese involvement in the West Coast is making it a lot worse. Whole areas are being depopulated of native families by Chinese death squads. Uh, the Chinese have bought up a lot of the resources, liquid natural gas sites. Um, the early police reports about these native corpses being found is that they were missing organs. And um, the same general running the organ trafficking system in Chinese prisons is on the board of directors of these liquid natural gas companies that are buying up all of British Columbia, forcing natives off the land like the British used to do. Um, and, you know, the... Um, it, it, you see it everywhere. There's like a, a example when the COVID nonsense started, there's a place called Oppenheimer Park where a lot of the homeless hang out, most of them native. And they immediately put all the homeless in this park. They didn't distance or anything. They had them back to back, literally camped out with their tents in this park. One day they all disappear. They're just carted out away and the whole place is surrounded by high 
fence now. And I asked the cops, they said, oh, we put them up in hotels. I said, yeah, that's the first time in history I've heard of the city paying for the homeless to have hotels. I checked with the Holiday Inn and these other hotels. They had never seen any of these homeless folks. So they were just gotten rid of, taken out. It's common if you're native and homeless, you disappear all the time. I know this having worked on the street there for 30 years. And so this kind of thing goes on constantly. And now it's happening even more effectively under these police state regulations they have, right? Um, so it's it's just a cover to have it even ramped up even more. I You know, we've issued a report. It's all on murderbydecree.com on our site. Just updates about this. In 2017, I issued a report to the world about, I call it the continuity of genocide in Canada. It's all online. It it again. It's it's where you take it and how you how you stop it. Now we're trying to stop it now with these common law assemblies and courts. It's the only way. We we the people are the only way that it's going to be stopped because there's collusion at every level, you know, of power about all these crimes. And as we round down the show, the actual um, I know you mentioned the Ninth Circle earlier. Do you believe there? Are, obviously, there's so many secret societies around the world that are on the actual, you know, the pyramid that some people call the New World Order, the One Percent. How connected do you believe the Ninth Circle are to all these other groups as well? Very connected. Um, it may go by different names, but child sacrifice, child trafficking, child rape, institutionalized murder—all of this is is a big industry. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry in the world. Um, the same banks like HSBC and Citibank, Chase Manhattan, who, who, who uh, you know, fund the money laundering for the big drug cartels, they're doing the same thing about human trafficking and killing. So there's no separation between arms, drug, and human trafficking. It's all part of the same crime. And like I say, the Vatican is the chief actor in all this stuff. So um, it's an interconnect. It's like any big corporation that's all interconnected and you see the same people all the time doing it right and finally the actual we're reverting back to italy i know for a minute but i'm sure it's worldwide how much protection does the italian mafia give to actual rome itself the vatican and worldwide because there's so many stories i've read and heard and it's hard to know which is which from your experience what kind of light can you shed on that well um you know the I, I, I do the, I, here's my book, Dethroning a Rogue Power. You can get it on Amazon, the Kevin Annett, and uh, why the Vatican must be denied presence at the United Nation. They, there's a lot of information in there about the ties between the Italian mafia family and, and various popes. Um, and, you know, a lot of the cardinals have worked openly with the mafia, especially in America and Italy, direct pipeline. But uh, the organized network, criminal network, they call it Drangheta or the octopus in Europe. And um, they're not the old time Italian mafia and their ties with the, all the Italian cardinals in the Curia in Rome, but it's like the new, kind of the new age mafia. Uh, and um, they come out of, a lot of the Dutch and Belgian uh, criminal syndicates are, are running it now. You can just type in Drangheta, D-R-A-N, G-H-E-T-A, or they call it the octopus, one of the code names. And they provide a lot of the, the, the children and, and this out of youth detention centers, orphanages that totally integrated with, with the big money, the royal families, the Catholic Church. And it, it's the same beast, really. You know. So what do you feel is your actual biggest challenge today and over the previous couple of decades that you've actually come across? What will be your most challenging? That's just the hardest you're constantly battling and fighting all the time. I'd say people's uh, not only belief 
in the system, but their adherence to it. It's hard for them to break from this very criminal system that's causing all these crimes. And I often say to people, you want to start with looking for the enemy, look in the mirror. We fund it by our omission or, or commission. We're um, aiding this thing. And it's, it's hard to take on. I mean, I say, for example, you're angry at Bill Gates and what he's doing. Well, then why are you using the internet? Because he, he created the stuff. I mean, Google is owned by GlaxoSmithKline, the British big pharma company. So you're not going to get any objective evidence off Google about this stuff. So, I mean, people are so integrated with the system of corruption that they're not sure how to fight it because we have to fight it in ourselves first, our allegiance to the system. That's been the most difficult. Surviving hasn't been a problem. I often say it's, you know, my greatest accomplishment is having survived 25 years, which I guess is true. But I find that when you stand in your own power and do the right thing, you have an unseen protection around you. And I, I've definitely relied on that. And a lot of, you know, the simple fact that if you're public and you put something in someone's face, the system has less power than people realize. And they're just individuals hiding behind a big mask. And you can strike those individuals and um, they tend to run. We proved that in Canada when the churches and government collapsed over the whole residential school thing because we started occupying their churches on Sunday morning, right? They don't like that. Uh, it affects their public image and money, which is the two things corporations worry about. So I go into that in great detail in my whistleblower manual, which people should get as well, Truth Teller Shield, how to op, you know, operate through this stuff. And um, uh, so I think that, but it's shifting people's allegiance. When the system breaks down, they lose allegiance to it and the system's breaking down more. So we need to create something different on the ground. And that's the whole common law republic idea. And uh, it's got personal, spiritual, political aspect, aspects to sovereignty, taking back our lives, right? Well, Kevin, any final thoughts? Just that. And um, those th that's a good thing to end on. Yeah. Uh, People want to write to me, it's thecommonland at gmail.com, murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.ca, and uh, that our Sunday blog show, which you, you'll have on your site. And just wanted to say hi to my relatives in uh, up in Tyrone and County Down. And uh, my, my great-grandfather was an O'Neill. He, he came over in a coffin ship to Montreal in 1880. The whole family was dead when they got to Montreal. He was an orphan, Daniel O'Neill, so I remember him. And... Uh, just, you know, say to my, all my Irish family that, like, you folks, we have a long tradition of, of being rebels and standing for what's right. Now we got to do it. we got to crank that up, folks. Uh, you know, not let them quarantine our kids, not let them force these mandatory vaccinations on us. Just got to go to the go to the wall on this stuff and fight them at every level. So good exactly. luck to all of us. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for coming on today and giving us so much of your time. It just, uh, the information you're given and your research over the couple of decades, just, it's just mind blowing and the work you're continuously doing regardless of death threats and splits and families and everything they pretty much threw at you. Um, you've just stayed, stayed persevering all the way through and just, just such a remarkable job you're doing. It's incredible. And keep going. Thank you, brother. No, we'll keep doing it. We'll do it again. I'll give you more updates as things progress. Please do. Please do. I look to forward to it. See you folks. I, I, I hope that when the, if the travel restrictions lighten up, I'll be over there in Ireland again. I'll keep you posted. Sweet. Thank yeah. you. Good. Thank you very much, Kevin. Okay, Chris. You've been watching Mind Wars. Um, please like, subscribe, and share. Uh, until next time, see you then.